0: I'm Steve Backshall and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here and I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Carl Charter, co-founder of Experiencing Marine Sanctuaries and underwater photographer. Welcome Carl. G'day, how are you going? Yeah, good mate. I've heard a lot of positive
2: things about you. You do a lot of things to do with the ocean, don't you? Yeah, I've been lucky. I've been uh, passionate about the ocean since I was a kid. I have moved through all the different areas of NRM from water through the native plants and now I'm back to my passion of the ocean. I've been working with the ocean uh, through EMS and ReefWatch for about 12 years. So I've been all all around South Australia and been lucky enough to travel overseas as well as a scuba diver. So in South Australia with EMS, that came up about five years ago through the new marine park system getting implemented. And I was asked to uh, form a not-for-profit group that could take people out to see the marine parks. A lot of people haven't seen below the surface. So it was my job to get people in the water safely with snorkeling gear and let them have that experience one-on-one with that marine life and be support mar- marine life and marine parks and be advocates for marine parks in South Australia. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a big five years. We've taken about 5,000 people out in the water over those five years. And every single weekend's been the water, which is where I like to be. I just love to be underwater. I feel better underwater and more kind of relaxed than above water. I like fish more than people, basically. <laughs> but um, yeah, I spend every weekend underwater. If I'm not doing that, I'm usually off scuba diving with friends or overseas scuba diving. But I always uh, look forward to getting back to South Australia. South Australia's got the most diverse and colourful marine life in the world. I can go anywhere in the world to a coral reef and it looks nice for the first day. But then I think, no, I miss the leafy sea dragons. I miss all those different coloured ascidians and sponges and all the colourful reef fish we have in South Australia, the blue devil fish. We've got the, um, the shark species here, which uh, a lot of people know the pork jackson shark. Um, yeah, it's just incredible. Uh, we've got more diversity here in South Australia than, than the Great Barrier Reef.
0: That's insane. <laughs> Isn't wonder. that amazing? Yeah, wow. I mean, we're always amazing. told
1: that the Mount Lofty Ranges are a biodiversity hotspot, which surprises a lot
0: of people. That's not where the sea is.
1: No, but, oh. but that would have to include
2: the um, the is mirrored there in yeah, the water, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah.
0: just unbelievable. I never knew that.
2: So we're talking about the Great Southern Reef now, and it's a bit of competition between the Great Barrier Reef and the Great Southern Reef. The Great Southern Reef is all the rocky reef with kelp that goes from about, west, uh, about Perth in Western Australia right around to just south of Brisbane. And it includes, of course, all the coasts along South Australia and in uh, Tasmania. And there's just an incredible diversity of ascidians and algae and plants and fish in that area that a lot of people don't realise is there. I'll be the the one to ask. What's an ascidian?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, yes.
2: (laughs) An ascidian is a, you might have heard of sea squirt. A sea squirt. So, an ascidian is basically a colony of small animals. You can have a solitary ascidian, which can be one large ascidian, which, if you touch that on the beach, will squirt water out. Uh, then you can have these masses of ascidians, which are colonies of thousands of ascidians. Probably only you'd have to get a microscope to see them. And they look like a bit like a sponge. And a lot of people do mistake them for a sponge. And they can be a, any colour you like from white, pink, orange, yellow, blue, black. So, if you imagine looking at, say, a pylon. My favourite dive spot in South Australia is Edithburgh Jetty because of the Obsidians. We've got um, so many colours. The pylons, if you put a flash onto them, you'll see a, a colour, basically pylon with pink, white, black, blue. There'll be uh, algae growing through the middle of that and there'll be sponges as well. And seagrass around the base and it's just a beautiful sight to see as you go through those pylons full of colour. Much more colourful than any uh, coral reef
1: I've seen in the world. So your biodiversity is not just what most people would think of things like
2: fish, it's also all these plant-like things. That's right, yeah, algae is the big thing in South Australia. So you've got the kelp of course, then you've got the red algae and you've got the green algae. So you've got three different types of algae and the red algae here has more diversity than anywhere else in the world. In the the number of different types of algae and the colours, it's really, it's a beautiful thing to see. So places like uh, Robe on the, the southeast, you can walk along an intertidal reef at low tide, and it'll just be every color in the spectrum of algae, and different textures as well. Some like fern-like, some are calcium-like, some are hard and Others are really feathery, others are like seagrass. There's so many different types of algae. It's just incredible.
0: What, what, do our, what does algae do for our oceans? Is it just a, clean and, uh, a cleaner system? Well, it's a
2: bit of a carbon sink. So especially kelp that grows, as you know, quite, quite a large plant. They can be like a, a forest basically absorbing, uh, absorbing that carbon. So they are a, a carbon sink. They're also bringing um, oxygen to the system as well. Just like a land plant, they'll, um, they'll have oxygen coming out and they'll, they'll take CO2 in. So uh, yeah, part of the carbon cycle of the ocean now you said you spend like almost every weekend in the
1: ocean and you love being there can you talk about why i mean obviously you love the biodiversity i'm
2: sure there's so much to see but is there any any other reasons that draw you in there I think it's because I've just been introduced to the ocean from a very early age. My my dad was a diver, so I used to see him dive all the time. When I was about nine or ten years old, I'd be asking him to take me diving, but I wasn't old enough at that stage to go. So at 12, he took me out in his Zodiac and put an aqua lung in my mouth and chucked me off the back and said, breathe. That was my dive course. (laughs) And I'd been practicing in the bath before that, the snorkel. I was so keen to go in the water. So I think I had that vision in my head from when I was a young kid, I'd, I'd be scuba diving. I read all the uh, the books and the magazines on scuba diving and marine life when I, was, when I was young as well. So when I got the chance, I just grabbed it and uh, learned to dive when I was about 14 here in Adelaide, British sub Club, and went back to New South Wales. I dived Jervis Bay, which is now one of the most beautiful marine parks in New South Wales. Uh, I dived there with my dad nearly every weekend on Navy boats. He was a Navy contractor. And came back to South Australia when I was about 16 and yeah, dived here for years and years and years. And... Uh, South Australia, like I said before, the, the biodiversity is incredible. And I think I, every time I go diving, I see something different. There's always something different. I do underwater photography, which is like another layer to it as well. I've always been a keen photographer since I was really, very young. I took, took up underwater photography probably 10 years ago. And now I've got a fairly professional camera set up with um, a macro lens and a wide-angle lens. And I can go down, I'll, I'll see something that I've never seen before and get a photo of that come back identify it and I've found a new algae or a new fish that I've never seen before or some kind of invertebrate it's just incredible what you can see and even if you go diving every day for 30 years you'll come back seeing different things in the same place I can look at an area as big as a coffee table with a macro lens for a good hour and a half and I can not want to leave that spot when my air gets low I was like there's so much more to see in that small area it's incredible Getting the photographs and the videos—that's the whole next layer that
1: you can take up and
2: sit yeah, at home for sure, and have a look at and yeah, discover and things you didn't even know you were looking at. Exactly, and I use that for education now. That's where I've got into now in my line of work, basically taking photos and using them for education in schools and um, publishing things in magazines and books and uh, donating images to Australian Museum for education. Um, yeah, it's just to take those kids in classrooms through a photo or a video, and now we've got 360 video and, um, and headsets for virtual reality, we can take those kids into the water. They might um, have a disability or not confident in own water. Uh, we can still take them for that experience and, and let them see what everyone else sees. Sharks, colourful jellyfish. We've got the leafy sea dragon uh, diving under the rapid bay jetty. I've just done a whole sequence of manta rays and whale sharks and just about to go overseas and do a, a shark Uh, video as well, so tiger sharks and all the other types of sharks you get in the Bahamas. Um, We've got a lot of footage in South Australia of Port Jackson sharks and they're one of the favourite things, the kids just love the Port Jacksons. Sea lions as well, seals and sea lions, just over at KI last week, EMS put together a package to try and um, get people over to KI after the bushfires, so we had multiple trips over there now with uh, participants going out to see the sea lions along the uh, coast. We've got 360 footage of that as well to show kids in classrooms. I wanted to
1: ask you about the fires. I mean, we see the land absolutely devastated and slowly things are starting to come back.
2: But how do the bushfires affect the ocean? Well, as you know, um, CO2 in the atmosphere uh, does get absorbed by the ocean and makes it go acidic. So we don't know how much um, acidity the bushfires have caused yet, but it could be quite a lot with the fires we've had around the world the last two years. The fires we had here in Australia, they've um, unprecedented, they had ash go right across New Zealand, as you probably know. A lot of that CO2 has been absorbed by the ocean, so a lot of things like shellfish that need that to start their life cycle, they can't actually form the first bit of shell where there's acidic water, and they are the the foundation of the food chain. So without those, there could be a large change in the ocean biodiversity um, as a result of the bushfires in the near future. So... I guess there'll be a lot of research now to figure out what the effects are. Also, I've just heard out on the east coast New South Wales with the flooding they've had, a lot of ash and dirty water has got washed in to the ocean up there, it's gone basically black. Scientists I know in uh, Southern Cross University in Lismore have sent photos around of uh, large fish and eels and that sort of thing like on the beach dead because of the black water, which takes all the oxygen out of the water as well. So there's been mass uh, fish kills Uh, along the coast just over the last few weeks. I was due to be up there diving at Byron Bay to uh, record leopard sharks on 360 about two weeks ago. And we canceled that because we had that massive rainfall of, uh, some areas got 600 millimeters of rain over two days and black water got pumped in. So the fires basically uh, left a lot of ash plus there's a lot of erosion now, I guess, because it's not getting held together by plants and it's been washed down into the ocean. So yeah, I'm not sure how bad it's going to be, but it's not looking good at this stage. Now you you talked about your 360 camera.
1: Yep. yep. Can you explain a bit a bit, bit of that? A bit about that, please?
2: Yeah, the 360 came in. Uh, we wanted, wanted to give that experience to people who couldn't normally go in the water. So very young kids, people with disabilities, older people, people that just weren't confident in the water. Some people just can't go in the water because it's not confident swimming, that sort of thing. So I worked with the uh, Marine Discovery Centre at Henley Beach to put together some short videos on South Australian marine life for their centre. Uh, now that's it's grown, after about four years, it's grown to now supplying video to um, marine park staff to show kids in schools. We've got footage going through the Wyler City Council on the giant Australian cuttlefish aggregation. And we've got hospitals using it and demanding more video for kids that are having chemotherapy and um, other cancer treatments and bound to a bed for a long time. So we're like supporting that area as well. Marion City Council gave us a, quite a good grant to get started. So we do a lot of the, in the Marion City area with schools and nursing homes. And, yeah, it's been a real growth area for EMS over the last two years. To actually experience this, it's almost like virtual reality. You put on a headset... Yeah, it is virtual reality. So when we get the footage, which is taken with three GoPro cameras um, on 4K, so they're in a specialised uh, custom-built housing, we record the video in the clearest water conditions we can get in South Australia, which can be quite good if you if you look out for the conditions. That video is then sent overseas uh, to a, um, a video editor that does pro bono work for EMS, and she uses that for educational use in America they get sent back and we put that into a headset so we use the oculus go at the moment and that gives people the the experience they're basically immersed in the water i was talking to students today from the school that we had uh, in the water teaching snorkeling techniques they had the experience uh, last wednesday and a couple of the students said they felt like they 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 couldn't breathe because they're underwater they Mm -hmm. thought it was a bit weird to be underwater and actually breathe at the same time so is that realistic It's incredible. You see fish come around. You can watch them go over your shoulder. You can watch them go behind you. Uh, A lot of the kids get a bit freaked out because I'm actually there taking the video behind them with a a camera on a tripod. So look around, there's this diver chasing them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one bit of footage, which is really realistic, we had a a young sea lion up in um, Band Bay which came up and sat right in front of me. I was actually free diving at the time, standing about two metres. It came up and sniffed right at my arm to my face, went down to my hand, then went to the camera and put its mouth over the camera. Oh. So when you watch the VR uh, footage, you actually see the sea lion with its its mouth open. It goes right over your face. And you see its esophagus, its teeth, its tongue, and it just freaks people out. <laughs> so I have to re- I have to edit that bit out for really young kids. Uh, it's a bit too realistic for for young kids, but yeah, all the other kids seem to love it. It's just incredible. <laughs> it's a bit horror movie, isn't it? Yeah. I know when that part comes up to hear a few screams in the room. That is awesome. You um, had an experience with some lungfish. I was lucky enough to be asked by a life member of the Marine Life Society of South Australia, Tony Isaacson, the guy up to Queensland. He was a teacher in South Australia back in the early 80s. So I met him at one of the AGMs. He asked me to come up to get and go diving. So off I went to Queensland and met up with him and we're in his mobile home driving out to the, to the dive site and suddenly the weather was changing and a lot of swell came up and he said, Carl, we can't dive in the ocean now we're going to have to go inland and dive a freshwater lake that I know I said, what, what can you see in a freshwater lake? And he said, well, there's uh, lungfish and I imagine these lungfish were only probably about 30 centimetres long I'd seen them on TV but didn't really know how big they were I got a surprise so we got in the water and suddenly um, out of the murks it was quite a murky kind of dam probably about two metres visit at the most this huge tail flapped against my leg and all this dust came up from the bottom and I just thought straight away, bull shark. You'd mentioned there were bull sharks in these waters as well because I didn't imagine it would be this big. So suddenly I got the, uh, I got the 360 camera out and swam along with two of these lungfish that were ahead of me. They were about six foot long, They're big fish. And I played that 360 footage back when I got back to Adelaide and there were actually five lungfish in the in the shot. There were two down below that I saw and then three above me swimming along just above me so it's going to be the most incredible footage to show kids in the future it's not from south australia so i haven't shown it in south australia yet but i will be doing some more exhibitions with vr from outside south australia so i'll be doing the uh the lungfish manta ray and whale sharks and also other sharks from other states in the future but i think to this day the lungfish were the most incredible experience that i've had diving it was just out of this world
0: that would be amazing like that's six foot fir- Mm. I never knew that they were that big
2: no me either it's huge mm. fish and the interesting story about these lungfish when they were discovered back in the early 1900s a farmer actually caught one he took it into the local historical society or museum next to his farm he uh, had it in the back of the car and he said to the person in the museum I think I found one of these lungfish and this person said to him the curator said no they've been extinct for a long time it can't be a lungfish he went into the car and he plonked this lungfish in front of this person at the museum and let's say they knew they were still there. A bit of a story there about um, they were extinct at some stage and then they came back and they were, oh, they were there and they found them. Incredible.
0: I want to see a six foot lungfish now. I'll give you the VR experience
2: wow. and swim with them.
0: Going back to the Port Jackson sharks which I think are one of the most stunning fish in the ocean they are really nice but you've seen lots of them
2: yeah, I have. When I started diving in Jervis Bay New South Wales, one of my vivid memories when I first started when I was about 15 or 16 was probably 300 Port Jackson sharks in this one area. There were wow. three deep over a massive area and we counted 300 that day and they were doing a, doing a breeding aggregation. So basically they, they settle on the shallow reef, they'll sleep there all day and then move out at night to breed and to hunt and that sort of thing. So probably three years ago, after not seeing these for more than 20 years, I thought, I'm going to lug my dive gear to New South Wales, to Jervis Bay, visit my dad, who still lives there, and go for a dive and see these things and take photos. That's exactly what I did. I lugged this camera gear on the plane, onto the train, got to my dad's, got in the water. We saw about seven Port Jackson sharks, which I thought was okay. I got some good photos. And there's a a citizen science down there called Sue Newsom who took me out and she showed me all of the local sites. And I thought it was great. Came back to Adelaide. And then, about a month later, the 5th of November, two years ago, I was told by a friend who goes diving no longer quite a bit, there are all these Port Jackson sharks coming in. I said, well, how many? He said, well, hundreds of the things. So I talked to a shark ecologist who had been snorkeling up at Trig Point, which is just uh, just south of the Onkapringa Mouth. She said, Carl, I was on my stand-up board yesterday, looking down through the clear water. I counted 80 sharks in about a 10-metre square area. I thought you are joking. So we found out after that we went to that side at Trig Point, went to Norlunga and also around Seaford and even as far down as um, probably Hallot Cove, we saw absolutely thousands of Port Jackson wow. sharks laying underneath ledges during the day. So you look under the ledge and you just see ten deep. I've got photos um, taken at Trig Point and you could all you could see is port Jackson sharks and the photo is nothing else but port Jackson sharks laid back and on top of each other in these masses and there were eggs everywhere getting laid. So we don't know why that happened, because it hadn't happened before in the past until then, and it just happened instantly. We had no sharks, and overnight, we had thousands of sharks along the coast.
1: It's nothing to
2: do with the water's warming? Um, I'm not sure if, if this is right, but at the same time, we had the Port Standback jetty being demolished, and we had a mass of boats there making a lot of noise and demolishing that jetty at Port Standback. And of course, where we saw most of the sharks was only within three or four kilometres of that that jetty up the coast. So I'm thinking that might have been their original area and they've moved away from that noise and activity because at the same time we saw a lot of interesting marine life turning up at Norlunga Reef, which is just up the coast. We saw large uh, gurnard fish that we hadn't seen them before. We saw a leafy sea dragon. We saw weedy sea dragons. We saw huge wobbegong sharks and we saw hundreds of Port Jackson sharks coming in which we hadn't seen there mm. in the past so I'm thinking it was probably port standback jetty um, but I might be wrong it could be something completely different but that's how that's what I think
0: they just look like little armor machines I love the shape yeah, the shape yeah. of a Port Jackson shark it's amazing
2: they are the uh, the, the patterns on the body as well mm. and the lady in South Wales is doing citizen science she's actually now taking photos from the top down and she thinks now the the patterns are quite unique for every shark so she can tell different sharks, apart from others now, through the patterns on the, on the body. So that's very interesting. And that, that goes over well to the leafy sea dragons, which have the same kind of... Uh, they can identify each leafy from the markings on its face. I don't know if you realise that. No. Every leafy sea dragon's got its own marking. So about a year ago, they restarted a project called Dragon Search, which ran for about 10 years, and it ended probably five years ago. Uh, Now they've got that going from probably Western Australia, right around to Sydney. And they're identifying from the facial features like a fingerprint, all these different uh, leafy sea dragons, putting them onto a catalog. And they're doing machine learning now. So eventually they'll be able to put a photo onto the computer and it'll come up straight away and say, okay, that one was from Rapid Bay. It's related to this other, other leafy. So it's gonna be great when they finish the database. Saying that they've been trying to get photos at Rapid Bay and the leafy sea dragon population is completely gone. They haven't seen a leafy there for six months. Oh, no. Is that right? No one knows why. There are a lot of different uh, ideas of what's happened. We've had a lot of rough seas over the last six months. That could have washed them out further. we get a lot of divers now from uh, locally and overseas that drop in on on the jetty from boats and also from shore. You might have up to 20, 30 divers taking photos of one leafy. So, of course, they're going to move off to quieter locations to get away from divers. There's also the, the idea that there could be some uh, people actually poaching the, the leafy sea dragons to sell to aquariums, so that's another worry as well. But I personally think it's just the amount of traffic that goes through Rapid Bay. It's well known now all around the world to be a hot spot for leafy sea dragons, or it was yeah. until now. So everyone that comes from overseas goes straight to Rapid Bay and gets in the water and they find the leafy and they spend a bit of time taking photos. Um, and after a while that leafy probably gets a bit sick of being repeatedly harassed by divers wanting to get the best photo they can get so yeah we haven't seen uh, a leafy there for a long time it's a real concern now they're
1: a state marine emblem here in south australia are they found outside of the state
2: yeah they're in that um the great southern reef from probably just south of perth right around to probably just inside victoria then outside that range with the weedy sea dragon which uh, occur mostly around sydney and victoria we do get them in south australia but a bit more rare here and also back around to yeah towards perth so that, that great southern reef is where we find them nowhere else in the world but that great southern reef area we've got the largest southern coastline in the world haven't we here in australia yeah exactly yeah and it's also one of the most diverse and the new term for it now is the great southern reef People have been talking about the Great Barrier Reef for a long time now. Um, But the Great Southern Reef is actually quite larger. It's worth a lot more to the economy as well. And it's much more diverse in marine life than the Great Barrier Reef.
0: How do they put a value on the economy to the
2: reef? Uh, Well, it's um, tourism and the main one would be fisheries, I guess, like uh, harvesting fish. But tourism is really big along that Great Southern Reef. They think it's worth about ten million dollars a year, I've heard, and it's a lot more than the Great Barrier Reef. It's surprising, but it's because it's such a large area, I guess. Mm. Are they those leafy sea dragons? They, they remind me of a bit of a seahorse. Are they related to seahorse? Yep, they are related to seahorses. When I do take people for a guided tour every now and again to see them, they expect them to be as big as a seahorse. So they'll be looking for something only a few inches long, and then they'll see this thing that's forty
0: centimeters long. Cruising around
2: here, quite large. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. they are huge. I had no idea. I think I've seen a video of someone with one, like sort of guiding it around with their hands.
2: That's not good. I thought,
0: wow, look at the size of that.
2: Yeah. We give uh, very clear briefings uh, not to touch leafy sea Mm -hmm. dragons, but people that come from overseas who want to get the perfect image of them, they will push them around a bit. And that's really frowned on. I've I've I've, heard, I've worked with. Oh yeah, so I
0: didn't mean actually touching it. They were just sort of stopping it, you know, putting hands even, up, and it, yeah, it wasn't touching it. But even that, yeah, yeah it's not great. But
2: yeah, yeah, people do touch them as well and try and move mm. them around. But yeah, even just even hurting them and stuff is probably a bit in invat- mm. uh, Yeah, not good. Mm. But yeah, we've written a good code of conduct now, which uh, explains to divers from overseas what they can and can't do, and they're usually quite good. I've taken numerous divers out, professional photographers. And they're usually pretty well behaved you might get the odd one that gets a little bit too excited when they see one but um, i usually take them to the bluff and you can see up to 12 leafy sea dragons on one dive at the bluff at victor harbour that's the big hot spot in south australia now for for leapings but the problem is you only know, see them there on a really calm day the bluff is open to this great to the great southern ocean and you get some really big swell through there so you can only go there probably half the time whereas rapid bay is a bit more protected Do you have to be scuba diving to see one or can you see one snorkeling? Uh, We have seen them on snorkel. We went to Rapid Bay about two years ago with EMS and I have actually put it down as a a sea dragon snorkel. I thought that was pushing it a bit because it is hard to duck dive down and see them. But saying that on the day we saw seven juvenile leafy sea dragons just below the entry point on the seagrass. So I was able to go down and scuba and actually point them out to people and they could duck dive down a couple of metres and actually see the leafy sea dragon on snorkel. I did see a young lady probably five years ago at Rapid Bay and she'd only put a mask snorkel on that day. She'd never snorkelled before. And I was on scuba. i just come up from a dive. And I, there was one directly below her. So I, I coaxed her down. she actually duck dived down about four metres. And I got my first photo of a snorkel with a leafy sea dragon in the foreground. And I thought it was so cool that she'd never snorkelled before. And there she was with a leafy sea dragon right in front of her. So, yeah, it is possible. And I can't say the location, but I did hear just yesterday that there are three leafy sea dragons in only a metre of water in a very popular area that people go to a lot in South Australia, swimming. So you can see them in very shallow water as well, if you're lucky.
0: Wow. Should we guess places? (laughs) (laughs) Top secret. (laughs) Top
2: secret, yeah. You take people up to see the giant cuttlefish yeah, that came about probably 10 years ago. I went up there with Flinders University Dive Club and I was sitting around the table with the other members and they said, oh, let's go to Whaler. I was quite new to diving in South Australia then. And they said, I said, oh, why would you go to whaler It's five hours drive away. Oh, because you see cuttlefish. I said, well, I can go anywhere in South Australia and see a cuttlefish. They said, well, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of cuttlefish. You'll see one every one metre square. I said, OK, let's have a look. So we went up there, I didn't actually have an underwater camera back then, but the people I was with did, and we got back after the dive, and people were getting their camera cards, that their phones, put on their laptop, there was these incredible photos of these cuttlefish, really like Technicolor, every colour in the rainbow on these cuttlefish, and all the, the morphing they do to mimic their background and mimic the colours, it just blew me away. And it was within two or three weeks of that, I bought my first underwater housing for my, for my camera and started taking photos. Um, But then coming back to more recent past with EMS, I had one of my participants um, ask me about the cuttlefish. And she said, oh, would you be able to organise an EMS trip to Wild and see the cuttlefish? I said, that's a good idea. I might do that for a team building weekend. So I organised this weekend for, I thought, about 10 people. We ended up having 75 people each day for three days in the water from Adelaide. (laughs) Every every day, like kids, uh, parents, older people. Yeah, it was an incredible weekend. We saw so many cuttlefish. They were just coming back from, they did go through a bit of a, a population drop, which I'll talk about in a minute. But every year since then, we've been back. And now, while the city council's termed this weekend or it's become a month, Cuttlefest. So Cuttlefest is now not just going snorkeling, but it's a whole lot of above water events as well. The museum puts on an educational event for schools. Marine parks put on, put on um, different events of education as well. They've even got a marathon there named the Cuttlefish Marathon. It's really been taken on by the Wild City Council. It's a big event, which they run every year. And last year we had over 500 people in the water looking at the cuttlefish. Plus a lot of dive shops are bringing their divers as well. So thousands of people from South Australia and overseas now are seeing the cuttlefish. And it was on Blue Planet, so David Attenborough was here probably three years ago recording them. And he's put it on the next the installment of Blue, Blue Planet, which is really getting more overseas visitors to to visit and have a look as well. I mentioned before the population boom and bust cycle for these cuttlefish. We had, probably six years ago, we had to go down to almost zero the population. Everyone thought they will become locally extinct, and the population went down so low that you might only see one every now and again when you dive there. And then suddenly it started to grow again, and it's gone up to, last year they counted, I think 120,000 cuttlefish in a six-kilometre piece of coast. (laughs)
0: That's
2: positive, isn't it? Yeah. We don't don't hear that with mammals. so That's really refreshing. Over
0: what period have they grown from...?
2: About the last five years have gone from next to nothing to, yeah, 120,000 individuals on that small bit of coast. So if you imagine going in on snorkel and seeing a cuttlefish every square metre grid, that's what it's like. And they're so colourful if we get in the water... And you'll see in the distance like a, bit of a glittering effect as you get closer you'll see that they're actually morphing into different shapes they're they're moving away and back towards the other males there they're doing what's called shimmering where they put their backs up against each male and their bodies just shimmer with colors going through which is trying to to dominate the other male basically and they'll stretch their bodies out from being about two foot long it looks like they're about probably three foot long but then underwater things are a third bigger again so these things look monstrous and they're making themselves look as intimidating as they can to ward the other males off there'll be one female sitting there next to a ledge laying her eggs and there'll be up to 12 males around waiting for opportunity to get in there and compete and fertilize those eggs so this is going on constantly for about two months until the males and the females are totally exhausted their eyes are falling off, their arms are falling off, they're dying everywhere. And then a mass of uh, seal, seals and dolphins and other marine life come in, birds, and basically start to feed on them. So then there's a yearly life cycle. There's no cuttlefish, just eggs under the ledges.
0: weird. That's, that's, yeah, that's unreal, isn't that's it? Yeah. <laughs> incredible if you didn't didn't count eggs they sort of become extinct at that point exactly for a certain amount of time yep yep there
2: might be the odd one that that lives for 18 months they're the ones that come back the following season they're huge cuttlefish they're massive whereas most of them are are quite small about a foot and a half long you do get them quite big the odd one would be huge so that you'll get the occasion one that'll live two years. Yeah, that's right. And it's, yeah, they're usually the dominant male at that stage, of course, because the other males are only quite small, and these are, are quite a large cuttlefish. And I don't know if you've heard about the uh, the, young, the young males that, uh, that mimic a female. Yeah, They'll I've actually heard cross-dress. That. They'll pull their arms in really, really tight to look very small. They'll change their colour and texture to be exactly the same as a the female. They'll move in beside the female that's laying the eggs and the other males start to protect both those females thinking, OK, I'll fertilise eggs for both these females. When the male turns away to fight with another big male, this small one morphs back to a male and mates with the female. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, brains over brawn. It's yeah. incredible. So, so they all get an opportunity to reproduce and exactly, survive yeah, exactly. the fittest. Yeah. It's incredible. So these animals come from all over the ocean to congregate for this mating? Good question. You yeah, used to think that. But I just found out recently, probably in the last year, that they're actually a, a unique genetic strain of cuttlefish that only survive and, and live in that bit of the Gulf. So they're only a quite generalised population. No one knows exactly where they go in the Gulf, but they go down into deeper water to feed on shrimp and fish and crabs, and then they come back fully grown into the shallows each year. But well, they don't go outside the Gulf at all, so they're totally a pool, a genetic pool, just in that Gulf. So if you go, say, to Sydney, you'll see giant Australian cuttlefish and they're completely different gene pool.
0: Wow.
2: I find that amazing. Just the way you describe the way that the colours and the
1: shapes move through them. I've, I've seen it on documentaries and you see it with octopus again. I mean, they're cousins.
2: Mm. You'd, you'd exactly. have some good footage of octopus. Yeah, I've got good footage of octopus, not on 360 yet, but good video footage. And yeah, like I said, they're just incredible to watch. They'll morph into different shapes colors within a second so they go from white to black they'll morph to look like a plant they'll put their arms up and kind of mimic a plant swaying in the current so you can swim up to one with your camera and think okay where's it gone they'll be right in front of you mimicking a bit of algae so their their skin morphs as well so they can make it rough or smooth they can make it all lumpy They can mimic anything. But the texture changes. The texture changes, yeah. They can actually... It's like uh, if you pull a bit of skin up and it stays there. if you've got an elastin skin, like an older person, they can do that all over their body. So all these bits of skin kind of all sticking up everywhere. And they can mimic basically anything that's around them. Another thing is they're actually colour blind, but they're one of the most colourful animals in the world. And they can mimic the colours below them. We found a weakness. Even (laughs) in the dark, they can mimic... The colours behind them or below them in the dark. So it must, they, they do pick up on a different wavelength than we pick up, and they, they can mimic that wavelength but it's not colour. Bizarre. It's so
1: mysterious, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by how other animals sense the world because there are so many different frequencies of colour, sound, and <laughs> smells. Mm. You know? uh, I wonder
2: how an octopus experiences the world. I mean, they've got massive brains, haven't they? They have, yeah. Some people actually think they're an, an alien species. They're so intelligent. I've heard that they say mm. that about fungi too, don't they? Oh, Okay.
1: Yeah. Wow. Fungi are an alien species.
0: Can yeah. I just, sorry, take us back to the giant cuttlefish again? Do we know why they got that? The, why their population shrunk at that point?
2: Nobody knows. We've no. had so many researchers try to work out what happened. It could have been, they say, a change in temperature when the eggs were um, trying to be incubated. So if the the temperature changes and it's too warm or too cold, the eggs don't hatch, of course. Also, the salinity could have changed. It's a very hypersaline area where they actually occur up in the top of the gulf. So if that salinity changed, that could affect the eggs. And being an annual kind of cycle, if the eggs don't survive, then, of course, the population crashes.
0: Oh, that's so dangerous, isn't it, to a population like that, just so Mm. reliant on something
1: yep we had Stephen Walker the the frog researcher on last week and asked him do you think there's frogs out there that in Australia that are yet to be discovered and he said absolutely I think when we're talking about the ocean I mean I think it's
2: largely undiscovered oh exactly yeah there's so many things undiscovered Talking about leafy sea dragons before we found a new sea dragon only within the last four or five years so we've had the weighty sea dragon and the leafy sea dragon. We've known about them for forever, basically. They've been do- well-documented. Only four or five years ago, someone was fosking through some drawers in Western Australia in one of the museums. Pulled out this drawer and found this skeleton of a red sea dragon. And they thought, okay, this looks interesting. So they took a DNA sample, sent it off, got it back. Completely new species. Ruby sea dragon. They only occur at 70 metres plus and they are red because as you go deeper you lose that red and they become black and they just blend in with their background at 70 metres plus. So they're a deep sea, sea dragon, same size as a weedy or a leafy, but never been seen before because recreational divers only go to 40 or 50 metres usually. So yeah, there's so much down there we don't know about. Wow, so we know they're out there, but nobody has seen one apart from the specimen, I guess. No one's seen one in their own eyes yet. They've only sent, they've National Geographic sent robots down three years ago and they got some footage. Um, but no one's seen it with their own eyes. They've only seen it on video footage, taking it deep, on deep dives.
0: Pretty that, incredible stuff. That is incredible stuff. I could well yeah. imagine there'd be so much to discover Oh yeah, there. So many new things. Mm. I think when you think on land, like in, in some of these rainforests and places, like there's always insects and everything being discovered, but the ocean would be so much bigger.
2: There could be so many things down there that could, um, there could be new drugs or or even Mm. the cure to cancer anything anything will be down there in those deep areas that we don't know about all these fungis Mm. and algae and
0: yeah that's very interesting
2: i want to ask you about blurring octopus
1: because because you want one because i want one (laughs) well i think i mean they're dangerous i know three people have died from a bite from a blurring octopus i know they're no joke i know octopus are very hard to contain and look don't get me wrong i love seeing animals in the wild and that's what it's all about but just like you show people the footage of the, the marine environment, I find, yeah, same, in the same vein, showing people actual animals connects them to the conservation message that we're yeah, all, all trying to push here and get people interested.
2: A blurring octopus in captivity? No? Yeah, I've heard some horrible stories about blurring octopus in aquariums in captivity. Uh, one I heard years ago was someone was cleaning the aquarium and ended up getting a paralysed. Um, because the venom actually was in the water, you don't even have to get bitten by the thing. The venom actually transfers from its mouth into the water and onto your skin, so you can actually get quite a bad reaction just by cleaning the aquarium with an octopus in there. So if you've just got like a little paper cut or something like that, the venom can enter you. Well, it can just enter through your skin without any cuts. it's oh. get absorbed. Wow. So they're not, you know, not the best creature to have in the aquarium unless you know what you're doing i guess as you know they can squeeze through a a crack in the glass basically and get out so they're very hard to contain very intelligent animals they can go from one aquarium to the next harvesting fish and end up back in the the original aquarium next morning have you heard that story (laughs) i've heard that story about an octopus (laughs) yeah they they found that with a camera track yeah yep yeah all the fish were disappearing all the time they can work out why so they set the camera it was coming out through the back crack of the aquarium, walking along the benchtop, into the aquarium, eating the fish, coming back to its own aquarium. In the morning, I turned the lights on, the fish are gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the octopus was in there just I go... <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Well, I came across a, a Maori octopus about six months ago off Aldinga Reef. Friends I were just snorkeling there, a bit of fun, and we came across this huge Maori octopus, one of the largest octopus in the world. This one was probably, if you if it was stretched out it would have been at least four foot across and the uh, the head on the thing was probably a good i don't know 20 30 centimeters diameter and i thought it would be gone because they can they can they can just swim like a torpedo they'll just morph themselves into a torpedo and up they go i chased one down on 360 camera at rapid bay jetty trying to get some 360 every time i went closer it jumped up morphed into a missile and shot away from me and then settling down to the seagrass again and i saw it It kind of came up and it looked over the seagrass. You can see his eyes just looking at me. (laughs) I swam towards it slowly and suddenly it morphed again and shot into the distance and it settled. So, of course, when we saw this at Aldinga six months ago, I thought, okay, it's going to be the same thing. I won't be able to get very close at all. So I came up with my normal Nikon camera, with a big dome port in the front, and a couple of the snorkelers in front of me and I, I was probably three meters away and this thing just sat there and i was moving slowly on the seagrass i took a few photos i always try and get as close as i can with a uh, dome port because it's a it's like a gopro camera you have to get really close to get something to look okay in the frame so i got into two meters away a meter half a meter taking pictures the whole time and suddenly i had the octopus up on top of the camera and it was actually almost on my shoulder mm. crawling across the top of the camera and checking the camera out I just wanted to, I thought, what is this? So I've got these incredible shots of the suction cup stuck onto the front of the camera lens. That's how close we got to it. Wow. Wow. So some are really inquisitive and will come in close, others will just shoot off as soon as you see them. But that was a really, really nice experience to have. And it was doing it on its own accord. It could have swam off any second, but it just wanted to be there with us and check us out as much as we wanted to check it out. wow So it was pretty cool. Yeah, he would have been fascinated by your equipment, you'd think, wouldn't you? Yeah, maybe the see reflection like as well. A lot of fish come in and see the reflection in the, uh, in the dome port. And I actually checked it out. Like, uh, a lot of leather jackets will come in and actually kiss the lens. Yeah, so a lot of fish are quite inquisitive. The, the sea lions will do that as well. Funny story about the sea lions at Bad Bay. I've got, because I want to make it like neutrally buoyant, this camera underwater, because I have to carry it on a, on a selfie stick, I want to make itself uh, neutrally buoyant. So i put a few crab pot floats on top. They're bright orange. Ah, oh, the seals just love them. So I took it up there, I put it, put it down on a tripod, and the seal's were knocking this thing over con- continuously. So the footage I got, which I edited out of it, was the sea lions coming up in their mouth was straight onto the dome lens of the 360 camera to try and push it over. And I asked the kids what their favourite bit is afterwards. And one, one of the girls put her hand up last week and said, I love that bit where the sea lion kissed me. <laughs> 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 and she only knew Well, I went through that day trying to get that footage of these sea lions. There were three baby of oh, quite young sea lions knocking this thing over continuously. It's like one of those dolls, those inflatable dolls. You hit and it goes up over and comes back up again. It's like <laughs> that camera. So every, every time I go on a sea lion tour now, I take those crab pot floats on my 360 camera. And there might be 20 people trying to get the attention of the sea lions. They all come over to me. <laughs> What's this toy this bloke's got?
0: So, yeah, it's been great. I've
1: got to
2: ask you, do you ever worry about some of the marine
1: predators like great white sharks?
0: Yeah, have you had any real dangerous experiences? Um, if not, make no. Up? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've never actually had an experience where I've been worried. I usually choose snorkeling sites and diving sites quite carefully. I do wear a shark shield when i need to like off uh, in deeper areas on shipwrecks or on drop-offs so the drop-off at dinga uh, anywhere that there could be more chance of sharks or wear a shark shield i won't dive at dawn and dusk it's a bad time as well we always try and like snorkel and dive where it's um quite quite shallow and no steep drop-offs so yeah I've, I've never actually had a worry yet we do worry about it of course because they are a big predator and they can come it's the ones you don't see basically going to get you I've been diving for 30 years and i've never really been worried while being in the water i have had friends uh, close friends who have been on dives and they've had a white point to swim past and usually they're quite graceful and just swim just just out of sight and they'll just circle around a bit when you go to the surface yeah. it's a scary bit and that's why a lot of dive boats have large shark shields and things like that on the back so you can come up safely because uh, yeah, sharks will mistake you for, say, a sea lion or, or a turtle or whatever, a natural prey, and come up and have a taste.
0: So when you say you wear a shark shield, yep. w- what does that consist of?
2: It's a device that was invented in South Africa, and now it's owned by an Australian company. It's a long piece of cable, probably about as thick as a garden hose, probably about two metres long. And a lot of people wear the, the type that goes around your ankle, it's got a little electronic device about as big as a mobile phone with a battery. And that gives off this signal like, it's almost like an electric fence when you touch it. It's a really strong shock. And the larger the shark, the more sensitive it is to that shock. There's um, the sensors on the nose of the shark which uh, pick it up. So the, the, the larger the white pointer, the more painful it is when this shock goes through the water. So they can't feel it or sense it probably for until they get into about five metres as when they get to about three metres away, it's too painful Now they'll just go the other way. They did some research on the shark shield probably three or four months ago and they found that it was the best shark deterrent on the market. They had another one which was a magnetic band which you put on either your wrist or your ankle and that increased the strike rates of sharks by 2%. So I'm not going to buy one of those. It- <laughs>
0: oh, wow. <laughs> two, please. It increased
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Apparently, yeah so the shark shield has been used i've been using it for probably five years it's been around for probably a decade and it's it has been proven to to make sharks swim in the opposite direction unless of course they're in a hunting mode and there's blood in the water then there's not much you can do they'll be in that basic instinct where they'll basically go for anything
0: it must be i went on uh, the dolphin dive boat and they throw something off the back like that that would be, be a shark a similar shield. thing yeah. yeah there's
2: a large version for boats which uh, yeah. gives out a much bigger radius mm. around the boat yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're great to have for when you're out in the blue, you don't know what's out there really, and you, when you come up, that's the spot they're going to grab you. When I'm on, on the bottom, I feel quite safe. It's just being up in the water column on the surface in deep water, you do feel a bit worried. You said you're heading overseas
1: to film some different shark species. Is that a particular time of the
2: year where they're all going to come in and congregate? or This is off, um, it's called Tiger Beach the location. It's off the Bahamas. It's one place in the world where you're guaranteed to see just about all the species of sharks out there. So you'll see uh, lemon sharks, reef sharks, you'll see hammerhead sharks, tiger sharks. Yeah, just all those different sharks in that one area. Basically there might be five tiger sharks and maybe 10 reef sharks swimming at one time. So it's basically surrounded by sharks in clear water. And there are people there who have been working with the sharks for the last 20 years. And the sharks, The tiger sharks actually form a relationship with the diver over that time and they'll come in and they'll nudge their snout in and wait to be patted like a dog. No way. Their eyes will curl back into their head and they'll just sit there and want to get patted. And this happens over and over. It doesn't matter if there's 20 divers. (laughs) This one diver that's been with them for 20 years, they'll swim into him for a pat and they'll nudge, nudge into him to get the pat and then he'll just push them around and let them go their own way. It's incredible to see. Do they wow. single out people they recognise visually or is there another sense they're using? I think it'll be a combination. I think it's a whole combination of smell, it's um, electrical senses as well. Then when they get in closer, it's their eyes. They can actually see quite well. They can see contrast pretty well. And these divers, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter what they're wearing, what colours, what kind of wetsuits they've got, what dive gear, the shark still recognise this one person as being that, that man they've been interacting with the last 20 years.
0: Tiger sharks are potentially as dangerous as a great white.
2: Exactly, wow. yeah. Wow. They're five metres long. They're probably the girth on like a combi van, or something. of are quite big pregnant females get out there. Wow. And they cruise continuously. They do have a person in charge on the day, and they've got a bell. Uh, and that person we be watching the other divers. All the divers are crouched down with their cameras. The sharks come in, and you have to be counting the the sharks all the time so you know one two three four five if you get to the point where you say one two three four and you hear a bell go there could be one coming in from behind and the thing with these tiger sharks is they come up and if they nudge into you their mouth opens up automatically so they can actually take a bite without even knowing it's like a like a reflex like a sneeze reflex they'll just open their mouth and take a taste so these people are employed to keep the other divers safe by actually warning them that there could be one coming in from behind but as long as you've got them in front of you and you've got eye contact, when they come in towards you, you basically grab them and nudge them away from you. So you just keep, on, keep them moving, but don't let them actually nudge into you. It sounds pretty freaky. Sure and knows. the adrenaline rush would be, yeah, would be a, a big one, I think. Mm. When you first jump off the back of the boat and be, you're surrounded by all these sharks, I can imagine my adrenaline levels are going to be pretty high.
0: I've always said I'd love to do something like that. I'm not sure if I actually would. the the thought of it really does get me going i'd love to
2: yeah this is going to be a dream trip for me it's actually been on my bucket list for years now and i'm doing it for my 50th birthday so really looking forward to it i've just so uh, you're not doing it for 15 years (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: i've
2: got i i've actually charted the whole boat it can fit 10 people and crew on it And yesterday I um, got the last friend to book in, so I've got nine friends going with me basically for my 50th to dive with all these sharks. So it's going to be really cool. And you're going to take the 360... Exactly, camera? Yeah, I'll take a couple of 360 cameras. One will be handheld, one will be on a tripod. So I should be able to capture all that activity. I'll be there for a week. So we'll probably dive three or four times a day for a week with these sharks, so it should be out of this world.
0: That's really tiring. Like Even when I go snorkelling like it's knackering it's
2: a different type of fitness yeah yeah oh, so
0: i guess you, you get used to it a bit but
2: yeah it's still it's still you get you get really tired like i'll go out and i'll dive for two or three days with people and you get back and it's like that feeling after from camping it's like oh, i've had this magnificent time out in nature but now i feel stuffed mm. i have to sleep for a day it can be like that feeling it's just such a relaxing thing to do when you're there but when you get out of the water and actually get home you do feel yeah. pretty exhausted
0: i love being I've, I've never done scuba diving but uh snorkeling i just everything just switches off as soon as you get your head down and yeah, you start exactly. looking over yep. these reefs it's just yeah it's amazing you, you do you yep. just switch off there's almost no noise and yep just it's got different. clicking the sound of that it's, that yeah. nice uh, yep. healthy reef all the, mm. uh, the shrimp and stuff clicking in the background
2: and yeah i, I feel more comfortable underwater that I do above water, I think, after 30 years of diving. I get, in, I get underwater, get to about five metres, shuffle my tank and stuff on my back and just get into a position and just go on my dive. I don't think about anything above water. It's just like meditation, really. Mm. You're drifting through. There's so much to see. Honestly, don't think for one microsecond about anything above water for that hour or hour and a half. I'm just thinking about the camera, the fish, recording things, showing other people uh, marine life that I've encountered. It's just a really and not really, giving
0: life's problems any thought. Exactly. At all. Yeah. At all.
2: Yeah. Escapism. Yeah.
0: Thirty years of diving. Do you, you know, do you see the differences from Probably back more, there actually. to 35. now? Thirty-five. Thirty-five years. Yeah, it's
2: coming. Oh, I'm getting old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you see the differences of how many animals there were back then to now?
2: No exactly, because I dived a lot of different areas around Australia when I was younger, and the areas I dived weren't marine parks then but now there are marine parks. So I can see places like Jervis Bay. I went back there to dive just recently. I can see there's a lot more marine life there because it's been a, it's been a marine park for so long, maybe 20 years or more. You go to places like Nolunga Reef and Oldinga, they have been marine reserves, marine parks since 1971. So that's nearly my whole life. So they've been like that for that whole time. Luckily, they've been preserved. And the numbers are quite good. But then I do go to places like uh, Marino, Hellock Cove, and you might be snorkelling or diving for an hour and not see a fish. So then you can really see the difference between a very, very heavily fished area, close to the, um, the urban environment with fresh water runoff and nutrients, then go to a marine reserve and you do see a huge difference in the number of fish. And at No longer Jetty, you can swim through a line where it goes from no fish, up on the jetty there's a, there's a, a marker saying this is a marine sanctuary zone, and there's a massive fish right in front of you as you go through that line. The fish know where that line is, mm. and there'll be a massive fish at the end of the jetty. It's incredible. So if you want to fish, you've got to push them
1: over that line. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Come in from the other way.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, do you do any fishing, or I believe you do a bit of agriculture as well. Yeah, I've got aquaponics in the backyard, which is growing uh, native silver perch um, and vegetables. So basically it grows together so you've got your vegetables using the nutrients from the fish and then the clean water that comes back from the vegetables goes into the fish so you have this cycle of fresh water going or clean water going back to the fish and then the nutrients from the fish feeding the plants so we have masses of lettuce and tomatoes and other herbs and that sort of thing growing and also harvest fish and eat those every now and again in the winter we put in trout probably 20 or 30 trout and they grow from about may through to when it gets a bit warm in november we start harvesting those and cooking them up and smoking them as well so yeah it's a really good system having the backyard i have um fish my dad used to fish back when i was a kid we would go out in the in the boat and he'd put a line in and we wouldn't catch anything he would go to the fish markets and buy something on the way home for dinner so we weren't that successful at fishing my grandfather used to fish a lot in south australia off his boat getting whiting and crabs and Squid, that sort of thing, which I think are really sustainable to eat, local caught fish. So, I, yeah, I just took my my son. He's nineteen now to Port Broughton because I used to fish with my grandfather in Port Broughton. When I was about probably eight or nine years old, and we spent just one afternoon catching blue swimmers for a bit of a feed. So, I think if you're you're fishing and you're fishing locally and getting fish like the crabs and the uh, the squid, which are a one year life cycle, I think it's quite sustainable. But I wouldn't go and like to a fish market and start getting fish from overseas, which have been yeah, fished on large factory ships with a lot of bycatch and that sort of thing. I try, not, I try to stay away from those fish. Yeah, good advice there.
1: Also, it tastes so much nicer when you
2: catch it fresh, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah, rather than this yeah, frozen fillets from the factory ship. Mate, any stories that really stand out in recent dives you want to share with us? Yeah, sure. I was down at the bluff in Victor Harbour just recently, and as I said before, there's been no sea dragon seen at Rapid Bay for quite a while So I took a couple of um, overseas photographers in to get the leafy sea dragon shot and we were swimming along at the start of the dive and suddenly I looked down and I saw these little creatures which were about as big as a common housefly. I looked down closer and I saw six or seven sea dragons, juvenile sea dragons, only probably two or or three days old at the most, just hatched. And they were moving backwards and forwards in in the surge So it was quite hard to see them. I don't know how I saw them to this day, but I looked closer in the weed, behind the weed. There were just masses of... I identified them a couple of days later. They were weedy sea dragons. So you don't see weedy sea dragons very often in South Australia, yet there were probably 10 or 15 in this one patch I looked at, very small juveniles. So I talked to a marine ecologist in South Australia called Janine Baker, and she said that every now and again the the weedies will breed and the babies will hatch and they'll get pushed in against the bluff and that happens maybe every seven years or so so yeah to see that many in a school was just out of this world great spot great spot for diving <laughs> for any marine life at the bluff but yeah really good for leafy sea dragons and, and weedy sea dragons do we ever get turtles down here
1: marine turtles
2: yeah, I've heard reports at Rapid Bay of turtles going through, loggerhead turtle. I actually did see one about four years ago on a wreck called the Clarus. We were on a wreck dive on the Clarus, and we had a couple of students with me. And we swam across, and this turtle was just sitting wedged underneath the, the hull of this shipwreck. As we got close to look at it, it uh, saw us coming closer and, like, swam off pretty quickly. Luckily, one of the people was with got a little bit of video footage to prove that we actually saw it but I've never seen such a big turtle until that day in South Australia. It was probably a good two metres long, wow. maybe a metre and a half wide, and it was a, quite a big loggerhead we identified as. But you do see some really weird marine life coming through South Australia. I'm not sure why it happens, but you do see... I've heard of a green turtle being spotted as well. I haven't seen one myself. Um, just recently there was sunfish in the Port River, and they're usually like a deep-sea fish. They also saw sunfish along the Encounter Bay near Victor Harbour. They were, going, they were whale watching, and they saw this weird thing on the surface, couldn't identify what it was, then someone identified it as being a sunfish. So that's really, really quite a, a rare sighting, but they do get regularly seen in mm. South Australian waters in the Port River, apparently, all places. They're a bizarre-looking fish, aren't they? They are, yeah. Very big, thick-skinned fish. They come up, to, actually, to get the parasites taken off by birds and other fish. That's strange. A
1: snake catcher posted a few months back they had a sea snake in Tasmania when they're normally tropical. Have you ever seen a sea snake?
2: I haven't seen one in South Australia, but they do occur. And again, it's down the Port River. I think because of the electricity plant, there's a lot of warm water that goes into the Port River. That makes this little localised area of tropical conditions. And we've seen a lot of introduced species there, jellyfish and nudibranch, which is a very colourful sea slug. And we've also had reports of fishermen catching a lot of uh, sea snakes in St Kilda area. I've never actually seen one. There was one in the advertiser caught of all places on the Brighton jetty. Yeah, I remember that. Several years yeah. ago. Mm. And the fishermen said straight away, this is common, we catch these all over the place. Mm. So I've never seen one in South Australia, but apparently they're they're quite common in those areas around St Kilda and even Brighton Jetty,
1: it's fascinating. Isn't it? it's a, I guess it's it's great people like yourself doing this because you get to see what's there, and you know when something unusual happens uh, because we obvious it's obvious on the land because we all experience these changes as you now every, every nothing static everything's changing, and yep. um, yeah, how fascinating that some mm, of these tropical species coming down here, yeah, mate. Um, if somebody wants to come out on a guided Dive and and see some of these animals like the leafy sea dragons and the cuttlefish and things like that. People from all over the world they
2: can get in contact with you. Yeah, through Experience in Marine Sanctuaries we run guided tours. We provide all the equipment, wetsuits and masks, and snorkeling fins, and also train guides. And we do have marine biologists on on staff as well. So you can go to our website at uh, emsau.org, and we've got a good, fairly good booking platform there for all of our tours, including the cuttlefish uh, tours. We do run tours for Leafy Sea Dragon every now and again. But as I mentioned, they're a bit hard to see at Rapid Bay at the moment. I also take private tours for underwater photographers. So if people want to contact me through my own private Facebook page, I can take very small groups. I can do maybe one or two divers, Um, not to put pressure on the Leafy Sea Dragons. But I have had some very high-profile underwater photographers come over and do photography in South Australia. So, yeah, contact me and I can take you out to see the Leafy or... If it's the right time of year, we can go and see the cuttlefish as well, which is from about the start of June till the end of July. And we'll put the links to that on the Aussie Wildlife mm-hmm.
1: Show website. And if people want to check out your 360 footage, is that available online at
2: all? I've got some samples online, but I do sell it through VR headsets normally. But there is a, a small sample on uh, online that you can look at through my Facebook page, 360 underwater. So if you look for that one, there's a, a bit of the cuttlefish, which is some of the best 360 footage I've got. It's incredible. So yeah, have a look at that one. I'd like to check that out. We mm. might even share that on the Wildlife Show page give people a sample. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no
1: worries. Yeah. Can you bring your 360 equipment over and we can film some rock wallabies and some reptiles and love have to and play. Yeah,
2: that would be awesome. That'd be fun,
1: <laughs> mate. Thanks so much for coming over and having a chat. All no right, thanks, thanks for having one. me. That was great. Like great to awesome. meet you both. And thank you guys for
0: listening.